Good morning, Memphis. Thank you for spending some of this gorgeous Saturday morning with me. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee, maybe some iced coffee, and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So by now, you have probably heard the news that President Biden signed into law Juneteenth, making it a federal holiday. Now, some folks may be unfamiliar with this holiday that has been being observed for several, several, several years. Um, so today, we're going to delve more into the history of Juneteenth, its significance, and what it might mean moving forward now that it is a federally recognized holiday. And to do so, I am joined by Dr. Leanne B. Smith, a licensed psychologist and an assistant professor of school psychology within the Department of Educational Psychology at Texas A&M University. Dr. Smith's research agenda through her cultural assets and social context of adolescent, adolescent development lab focuses on how minoritized youth receive developmentally appropriate and culturally relevant support from their parents, peers and schools to promote positive psychosocial and academic outcomes. Welcome, Dr. Smith. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking to Memphis, um, but also excited to be talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know, we have that Southern Connect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a special connection. Yes, 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 it is. Well, I am really delighted to have you. And I'll just be honest with our listeners. You know, I had you scheduled as a guest and we we're going to talk about some other topics uh, within other areas of your expertise. But because Juneteenth was just written into right our federal holiday system, um, such an important conversation to have. And you being the perfect person to talk with this about for a few different reasons. So give folks a little bit about your background. Yes. So um, all that stuff you said at the beginning is what I call like, that's my CV. That's my academic background, right? But who I am at my core is I am a first generation college student. I was born and raised in Galveston, Texas. Many folks might not be able to hear this through the recording, but I am a Black woman. <laughs> so that's also been very important to me. And Galveston is a very small town in the state of Texas. But for those who are keeping up with um, the accurate history of Juneteenth, we'll know that that's also the place where the Emancipation Proclamation was read um, back in 1865. Um, and so, you know, born and raised in Galveston, I was that young kid who was sitting on all of the boards. And so I did a lot of community work um, and I guess you could say emerging activist work when I was um, in high school and middle school. Um, but, you know, now I am back closer to home, but not as not in Galveston. I'm in Houston, which I often call the second place of Juneteenth, because that's where a lot of um, those who were freed in that time, they ended up going further to what we would now call Houston um, to have their freedom. So that's me. I guess that's me. I don't know. What else? <laughs> Well, we may find out more throughout our conversation today, but could you just briefly 
or I don't even want to say briefly, but could you start to kind of share with our listeners the significance of Juneteenth? You kind of mentioned a little bit just in that intro, but if you could talk a little bit more about it as well. Yeah, so um, Juneteenth, I feel like is part of the like the hidden history, the hidden Black history is what I would coin it. Um, And I've developed most of my personal um, passions, but also a lot of the research I do and the programming that I do at the university level with some of our Black students that are at a predominantly white institution is about providing them with that hidden history, that hidden Black history, because that can be a key for Black identity development. Um, that can be a key for Black con- like critical consciousness development, but also to feel them, make them feel connected to a purpose that's bigger than themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also help contextualize some of the not so good experiences we have, like discrimination and racism, when you can label that as something, it makes you feel a little better because then you're not internalizing that as, oh, I thought that was just me. Like, no, there's an entire system operating that is explaining the situation, um, the experiences that you're having. So Juneteenth, I was always just born and raised for it to just, it was a holiday. Um, My family actually didn't celebrate Fourth of July. And that's not because it was this huge political stance. It just wasn't part of our culture. Um, We would get together and, you know, just be together, but there were no fireworks, there were no big parties, but Juneteenth, Juneteenth was the day that I needed to make sure I was around my family. Um, We would go to um, Galveston, they get together, they go to the same place that the Emancipation Proclamation is read. They would often read the Emancipation Proclamation and then we would have an afternoon of fun activities, educational centers, just a lot of um, different information. Um, that's often what a lot of people would get registered to vote. That was often a lot of times when there were major um, bills or things that were happening in our local government, that would be the time when people come out and give that information to the community. So I always grew up knowing that Juneteenth was a part of our history and something that our ancestors um, really celebrated, but that it was also a time of purpose and a time of thinking about how is it that we can help our community get some of the things that um, we might not be getting from the institutions um, through the justice systems and different institutions that should be doing it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, because I mean, my listeners know I'm Asian American. So Juneteenth, right, is not a part of my kind of cultural history. And even growing up here in Memphis, a very black city, I can't remember a time when I was growing up that Juneteenth was kind of like a big focus. It definitely has become so over the past, you know, several years, but Mm -hmm. to hear you talk about this holiday and what it really meant in Galveston, right? Specifically, and this idea, not just of celebration, but also purpose, right? And thinking about how can we continue on a legacy born out of this kind of holiday and and what happened. And so I think that's really important because a lot of times we think about holidays just as kind of like, oh, it's a day off. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to get a good sale, right, with the commercialization of everything. It's like, oh, it's just a, a day for a sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you were talking, you know, Juneteenth is really a day for both the celebration part, but then also thinking about purpose and investment in the community. And I like this connection that you made in thinking about this hidden history 
right? And how you use that now kind of in your own career. Um, but I want to get into more of this hidden history aspect of it as well, because, you know, it's interesting when we talk about hidden history, hidden history to whom and for what purpose, right? Yes. yes. And so part of what I think um, makes me a little sad or disappointed that it has so quickly become a national holiday is that the history was hidden from people who that's part of their culture also. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that is um, most frustrating to me because the holiday was always supposed to be about empowerment and a liberation. Um, but when the people who could hear those messages the most, so I'm thinking of other people within the black community, other descendants of slavery, um, who are so far away or were far removed from Texas or the culture of the South to even know the significance of Juneteenth, that's who I think the history has been hidden from and who needs the information the most. Um, uh, I'm thinking when you were talking about um, the purpose behind the holiday, it also made me think about a part of that hidden history is, you know, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed two years before it was ever announced to my ancestors um, in Galveston, Texas. Um, once it was read, everyone is now thinking, so I'm thinking about the name of the holiday is being called National Freedom Day. And I feel like it's a misnomer um, because there actually was not, um, there was a large amount of freedom that people were able to um, enact, but it was not freedom of an entire group of people because they still had to, um, it's kind of like when we think of Brown versus Board of Education and how it says We need to desegregate schools, but we now know that there are a lot of schools, specifically in the South, that dragged their feet to desegregate. The same thing happened with the Emancipation Proclamation. So slaves at that time were able to be able to buy themselves out of slavery, or they could get into kind of a bartering agreement with the um, slave owner. Um, And so they were able to buy pieces of the property or pieces of the land. That's where a lot of the sharecropping comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the time that it was read in Galveston, Texas, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but a large amount of people who were enslaved at that point actually left Galveston. And some of them came right here into Houston, um, the fourth ward or ward area, and they put their money together to buy land. And the whole purpose for buying that land was so that they could celebrate um, Juneteenth every year safely, because they mm-hmm. knew that Even though this was signed, you know, it was a holiday to them. um, They knew that their celebration and the ways that they celebrated could easily be shut down if they did not have a space that was theirs to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like even that helps you understand more about the feeling and the intentionality that my ancestors had when they were hearing about the Emancipation Proclamation. So they were aware that now I guess legally we're free, but they always knew the, the mindset and I'll actually call it the psychology behind the system and the people who were enacting these laws in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important to draw out because oftentimes when we think back on history, we kind of have a romanticized kind of idea um, or we think, oh, you know, emancipation, and it was the end, freedom. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> that was the beginning. That was the beginning. 
Right. Yeah. As you said, that was just the beginning. And people mm-hmm. think, you know, oh, well, it was, you know, we have a funny way of thinking back on history, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, oh, well, it was a law. So, of course, as if just by signing something into law that automatically it changes kind of the social customs or expectations yes. and norms um, and perspectives of people. Yes, I think that's a trend that we have in America. We, we have this revisionist history that all of us were educated on for the most part. And so we only get what someone gave us. And we, the only thing that was given to us was who had the access and the resources to tell their story. Oftentimes it was not those who were marginalized and oppressed. I always say that I was fortunate enough to be born and raised in Galveston because they were big about having educators from the community come back and be educators within the community, right? Mm-hmm. So my history teachers were people who knew about Texas history, the accurate understanding of Texas history, but they also knew about the importance of Galveston, Black history, Black history globally. And I was given that not only in the classroom, but also through my family. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was a very empowering way to be raised. And I want more children of color and um, Black children specifically, I want them to get that in a climate that makes that so difficult for them to get otherwise. Um, And actually sometimes depends on them not knowing about the accuracy of their history and having pride in that history. Um, Because if you have pride in your people being resilient and overcoming and being community-minded and loving each other and fighting for their own liberation, well, then you can then be empowered to do that too, which works against a white supremacist system. What you just said, I thought was so important because I was about to ask, you know, I know Texas education, you know, Texas is really big on Texas. (laughs) Um, Even thinking about kind of very current curriculum changes or mandates around Texas history and Texas pride. Um, And so that was actually going to be one of my questions, which was how much was Juneteenth actually taught or talked about within, you know, your own curriculum kind of thinking in, you know, K through 12 setting as well, if it was even included, or were these educators who had, you know, were from the community and who had come back, as you explained it, um, were they kind of adding this into their curriculum to supplement, you know, what was, you know, kind of just in the textbooks? (laughs) That is a very, that's a very good question. So I would love to be able to go back and look at my textbooks, but Let me be clear, I am not commending Texas as a state for accurately recalling the historical relevance of Juneteenth at all. I think um, it was, I think there were teachers who knew that there were certain teaks that they need to hit. So those, I think it's like Texas education, knowledge and skills, whatever, it's the learning outcomes. Mm They knew they had to hit that, but I think they also knew that they had to tell more than just what they, they had to teach more than what they were told to teach. Um, And I would be remiss to not say all of my education was always supplemented through community. Mm -hmm. So I even remember being in, um, living in apartments at one point in the, uh, the apartments were called Robert E. Lee. And if anybody knows, you know, that is not the kind of place you want to stay, right? But at that same time, I was in middle school learning about Robert E. Lee. And so I would come home and be like, why am I living in this place where history went so wrong after the name of this, you know, so 
me, I'm trying to reckon with all of that in my middle school age, but I was fortunate um, to have my, uh, my great uncle who's no longer with us, um, but was an activist, a community servant, prolific in every way that I could think of. He would pick me up from my uh, apartment and he would always remind me of the truth of who Robert E. Lee was, the truth about who I am, right? So he was always giving me that education um, because he knew that there were some things left out of the textbooks. He supplemented a lot of my textbooks with books from black scholars um, from all different domains, books that I now go back and reference. And I was like, huh, I really was raised with the right stuff in mind, right? But <laughs> I think about how much someone else who wasn't educated in the school that I was educated in, who didn't continue their education in the way I was privileged to continue my education, and maybe were only 200 miles away from me, probably have a much different understanding of Black history as it relates to this nation and specifically in Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is so much dependent on, you know, not just the textbooks, right, which tell a very constrained, confined, and, you know, story, but also, I mean, shout out to those educators, both formal and informal, who really are committed to sharing the truth and making sure we know history, yeah. um, the full, you know, history, both good and bad. Um, I definitely, like that resonates with me so much. And that's part of the reason why I was so excited to be back here at Memphis, you know, in my hometown, also at my undergrad alma mater be, and having gone to school in public schools here and being so upset later in life when I realized so much of Memphis history that was not taught in our schools. And, you know, we have a very rich history in Memphis as well, very significant for a lot of different reasons, uh, but so much of that completely missing from our curriculum. Yes, and Memphis is actually um, one of the spaces, I always say Memphis and um, New Orleans, they always hold a very special place in my heart um, because when I did go off to college, which is my alma mater, the place that I work is also my alma mater, which is very interesting, a fun, we have to talk about that offline. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember being in a lot of programming there, it's a lot of the programming that I am now facilitating for students of color on campus, but they would take us to do cultural excursions um, and they would have us understand some of the hidden history of black people in the South, right? And um, Memphis is one of those places that we would take them to. And so we get some real good eats. Y'all got yes. some good, y'all have good hole in the wall places to get food and like, and it's music everywhere, right? Because music is just so, there's a whole history of music that's there in Memphis. Um, but we would also go to Louisiana and we would look or New Orleans and look at some of the slave plantations, the plantations that got it horribly wrong. And the one plantation that I found to get it right, which is the Whitney plantation, but all of that was so that we can expose them to the history that a lot of them didn't get in their um, K through 12 environments. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're gonna talk more about this education piece, um, especially because I know a lot of the work that you do now is around this kind of piece around education um, and kind of these positive outcomes that we can create for students. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
And we are back here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Leanne Smith, an assistant professor of school psychology at Texas A&M University. And for folks who are with us in the before the break, you know, we've been talking about Juneteenth, uh, but also a broader conversation around kind of hidden history um, and the importance of education and specifically the importance as I was listening to you talk, thinking about this importance of knowing um, complete history. And I would say even seeing ourselves specifically thinking here about racially minoritized folks, seeing ourselves within the curriculum and what that can do for educational outcomes, but also other outcomes around self-esteem and identity. And so I kind of wanted to delve into that with you because I know some of what your research is, is around kind of those topics as well. Yes, I often say that my research is a me search. Mm -hmm. So, um, I went, I never thought that I would be doing psychological research. Let me first say that, um, or scientific research in general. Um, but I got to a place in undergrad where I was realizing what is it about how I was raised or what supports that I had that allows me to thrive in spaces that I don't see my colleagues or people who I grew up with being able to access either, right? So I got very interested about interested in how we raise resilience. I consider myself resilient. I'm gonna make an assumption that you are resilient. I think that a lot of the things that get us to this point is the information we were exposed to, how we were motivated, how our families supported us, how our community supported us, and then also what was happening in our schools. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think schools serve a very special place because regardless of what is happening in a child's environment, they are gonna be in the school, usually about, you know, let's say eight to three. So that's about seven hours a day, right? That's not including if this is a kid who also does extracurriculars at school. So that means for that many days out of the week, uh, for that much time, seven, five days out of the week, they're able to receive some type of information from their school settings. So it's very important that we understand what all they're getting from that environment. I think sometimes we minimize that to the curriculum and what exactly is being taught, what are the educational outcomes, all of that. But we are now all experiencing a traumatic experience. Like all of us this past year with COVID, we've all experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. And so whereas me and my colleagues will be, you know, yelling to people saying we need to focus on social emotional development. We need to be focusing on identity development. Now are, people are finally seeing what that actually means. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when we talk about um, teaching students or creating spaces where they can learn more about the accurate history, but also uh, about how they can liberate themselves, right? How they can liberate themselves by living healthier, by um, understanding their racial background. So I'm now gonna use jargon. I research racial socialization and racial identity, which is basically how are we communicating what it means to be a part of a racial group to our children. Mm -hmm. um, and my research has found that that happens within the parenting dynamic. It can happen with peers, but it also happens in schools through teachers and through the policies that schools build up. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's, you know, when I'm listening to you talk, you know, it's making me, of course, think about these current debates about critical race theory as well. Um, I can't help <laughs> but to, to make these connections because it's such a big um, ongoing controversy. You know, people have really latched on to this concept of critical race theory. Um, people, you know, they think they know what critical means and they think they know what race means. So in their minds, you know, they're kind of trying to work out what critical race theory must mean. Mm -hmm. um, which as we know that people aren't necessarily <laughs> getting an accurate understanding of what the theory is. But I think it speaks to a broader, the broader importance that race and racism, understanding these as concepts, what they play in the education system, but also as you're talking, how they impact, you know, students' own kind of self-development um, mm -hmm. as well. Yes. And um, to me, CRT, um, I, we often talk about there's a research to practice gap, right? And it's where we get into our ivory tower and we talk about how this is what we know to be the best way. This is what the evidence shows us we should do. Why aren't they doing it, you know, in whatever, wherever your research informs, you're wondering why they're not doing that. Well, I think I now understand. And it's because we get tied, bogged down in jargon. We actually miss the mark on knowing how to reach the community, we don't infuse community voice. And so yes, there's always gonna be a gap if we are forcing labels and titles and jargon to other people. I think um, critical race theory is very important, but I think that it doesn't mean anything to me as someone who is unfortunately being oppressed by the system. You know, like I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna use critical race theory to make myself feel better, to understand my discriminated experience, right? I'm not gonna do that. Um, so I think it's our job as academics to distill the information in a way so that we can protect the integrity of what the construct is to us internally, but that it's also approachable to the community and lay audiences. Because I think what has happened is people have latched on to critical race theory. And like you said, have tried to create their own understanding behind it and I was being weaponized against people who really, if you look at where their work is coming from and what it was founded on, it's all airtight. And it is all about just creating the equity that our country is claiming to want to see happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I wanna talk more about um, some of your research and looking at the different outcomes in uh, racial socialization, because I know that is kind of one of your main areas. Um, so you touched on a little bit about what racial socialization is. And I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit more and then talk about some of the ways um, that you use it in your research. Yes, yeah, so uh, racial socialization, I always say it's stuff that is probably already being done and researchers came in and gave it a label, right? So <laughs> we now know that uh, most families in America in general provide some form of socialization to their child about what it means to be a part of their racial group. That is inclusive of majority. So white parents do this and so do all families of color. It's just differing in degrees for each racial group, right? Um, generally, it, I think about it in four different umbrellas. There are a lot of different ways you can think about it, but one of those is instilling cultural pride. So telling the, um, the child or explain to them the accurate history 
about what it means to be a part of their group so that they can then feel empowered. So they then feel like they um, are connected to an, a, a community that's bigger than themselves. But for minoritized children, it also looks like um, receiving information of how to prepare yourself for bias. So recognizing that within this nation, um, as a person of color, you're gonna experience marginalization. And so how can you prepare yourself? So there's some coping in there, right? How you can prepare yourself when these um, challenging experiences happen, how do you respond to it? Sometimes that is modeled and sometimes that is communicated verbally. So this would look like if you have a young child and they're in the car and um, you know this is a black family and they get pulled over by the police officers, in that moment, that child is receiving a form of racial socialization because they're now figuring out how do I engage with officers, um, even if I know that there is some bias and some discrimination that could happen, they're looking at their parents to see how do I navigate this. Um, it's that social referencing that we know happens when kids are younger, which is, okay, they're looking to see is mom anxious? Is dad anxious? Are they scared? Because that is then how they're going to cope with similar experiences. Um, and then there's also things like um, promotion of mistrust, which we're actually finding is not necessarily a very good of racial socialization. Mm -hmm. And it is um, in-group versus out-group. So getting, um, it's when you are socializing your child to believe that their racial in-group is better, um, more superior, you know, and not to trust people outside the group. And that is the real important component is that it doesn't leave any room for us to really think about there are good people in all racial groups and there are some people who are, I don't want to even say bad, they just don't recognize what they have been socialized to believe in. Mm -hmm. um, so they're enacting our dominant system, which usually is going to be white supremacy. And that's for any racial group. You can be in enacting white supremacy. I have to say that because that's another soapbox I get on. <laughs> um, but what we're finding is that as students or children come to know more about their racial history um, and come to learn more about uh, prepare themselves for discriminatory experiences, they actually become um, have healthier racial identity, which racial identity has been linked to self-esteem, better relationships with other people, um, less psychological issues, um, and more just general sense of well-being. We also have found that that racial socialization is very, um, has a positive relationship with their academic outcomes. So children who receive these positive messages are then able to have better academic motivation, engagement, and achievement. And that's, that's pretty noteworthy considering that all families already do it to some degree. Um, it's just empowering more spaces to have consistent messaging um, because often parents are, you know, putting all this good stuff in their child, but then they go into a school system or a community area that maybe is undoing some of that positive socialization that was done. Mm -hmm. I think that's so, I mean, just listening to what you said about how these different types of racial socialization can potentially lead to positive racial identity and then all these other really healthy outcomes that we all want, right? Like positive self-esteem, you know, um, supportive relationships and, you know, less psychological distress. I mean, all these kind of protective factors that yes. racial socialization offers. Um, I think it's really exciting because there are a lot of ways that all of us, regardless of kind of 
what area we work in, we could potentially be contributing to more positive racial socialization. Um, so that's that always makes me excited, like the hopeful yep. aspects of it. And so I want to tie it back into Juneteenth and this uh, federal recognition, right? This federal holiday um, recognizing Juneteenth, because I'm wondering, what do you think are the possibilities for now that Juneteenth is a federally recognized holiday? What are the possibilities for that contributing to kind of more positive um, racial identification or just contributing to this racial socialization process? I think this gives us a very um, great opportunity as a nation to tell more of the accurate history of the holiday. And hopefully that starts a trend of telling the accurate history of all of our marginalized communities. Um, one of the reasons why I took, I had such a knee-jerk reaction to it becoming a holiday was because it reminded me of Thanksgiving and how making Thanksgiving a holiday to me just was very um, disrespectful to Native pop populations in our Indigenous communities because we were being told inaccurate history that was actually tied to the mass genocide an entire generation of people, right? So, or an entire um, demographic of people. So I hope that this, I just want everybody to keep talking about Juneteenth about the way it's supposed to be. Um, like I mentioned, I'm not seeing that yet because even the name feels like a misnomer. Um, even when I've been seeing people give their little one sentence blurb about what new Juneteenth is, I'm like, oh, that's not really accurate, right? But what racial socialization does is it gives us an opportunity to tell and educate groups of people about their history and help them also figure out, okay, I don't understand this part. Okay, let me teach you. So I hope that, I don't know, you know, I'm not a politician at all. <laughs> I can barely stand the news right now if I'm being completely honest. Um, but I hope that it starts national conversations about how can we get this holiday right? Like, how can we do it right this time? And how can we use it as a place of empowerment and liberation, not just for Black kids, but for Black people, like, along the entire spectrum? My ancestors deserve to have their story told accurately. And my children or my great-grandchildren in the future deserve to also know that accurately. And I don't want it to be lost. Um, so, yeah, I'm... I, I know what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm working in my sphere of influence. So um, I have been doing, I'm gonna be in Galveston tomorrow for Juneteenth and we're gonna be working with the community. I'm talking on your show about it. I was talking on another radio show this morning about it um, that's based out of Houston. And um, like I said, I do these trips every year with groups of students where we do cultural excursions and they're learning about Juneteenth. They're learning about Black codes, they're learning about Jim Crow, they're learning about the true history of um, Black people in America. So that's what I hope can happen. I don't know. And you mentioned, you know, seeing folks already. Of course, I always think about, you know, social media and I mean, media in general, which is very, you know, you have to be so quick to, you know, put out a statement or to, to show that you're, you know, in support of this or that you don't support that or whatever it is that folks can end up, like you said, you've seen a lot of folks kind of say, you know, put out their little blurb about Juneteenth and you're like, mm, that's not 
it. <laughs> so could you share with us maybe some misunderstandings that people have about Juneteenth? Yes. Um, the biggest misunderstanding that I think frustrates me the most is, and I've heard this mostly in academic settings with other Black scholars. And so that's when I was like, oh, we really have a problem on our hand. Um, this idea that we shouldn't be celebrating Juneteenth because they heard about it late. Why are we celebrating them hearing about slavery being over late? And I think you, you, it's the wrong perspective that people are looking at. Um, it is the perspective of those enslaved that we should be focusing on. They felt liberation. They felt jubilation. That's why I was originally called Jubilee Day. Um, so it is that feeling of I was shackled and there was no end in sight. And it's like, finally, the nation has said that they don't want slavery, that slavery is not a good thing. That, that was very, that needed to happen, right? So it, to me, it's the break in the clouds. It, I'm thinking about the last year that we had with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd, with a lot of that. I know I was just looking for a break in the clouds. It doesn't mean that what I was given was necessarily what I need. It doesn't mean that, you know, voting rights were then figured out, right? Because we see that that didn't happen. But it did give me a moment where I didn't have to be hypervigilant about the fact that I'm living in a nation that does not support my humanity. Mm -hmm. And my ancestors got to experience that on Juneteenth. And so, like I said, that's one of the best conceptions that really gets me emotional um, because it's once again taking something that a community designed for themselves, a celebration that they designed for themselves, and then giving it and letting um, a, the federal government co-opt it or letting people who don't have any um, connection to that co-opt what that's supposed to look like. The other thing is a lot of people think that it is very new. It is not new. So Texas was the first state to make it a holiday, but um, descendants of slavery were celebrating that long before it ever was, like I mentioned. Um, right when it happened, they went and secured land to be able to celebrate it from this point, from that point onward. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want people to know that there is a history that already exists. Miss um, Tina Knowles, I'm gonna call her Mama Tina because that's what I call her in my head. <laughs> um, I was really excited to see her partnership with Facebook because growing up in Galveston, we all knew about Tina Knowles and Beyonce and because they came from Galveston. Um, so to hear her tell her story of her own experience of Juneteenth and hearing just how similar it was to mine, it kind of gave me a feather in my cap. And I was like, okay, I know I wasn't tripping. This is really, um, it really is uniquely something um, that we experienced. Um, trying to think of any other, I made a post about all of the things that, <laughs> all of the misunderstandings I think people have about Juneteenth. And I'm trying to recall that, but those are the two that are sticking out in my head the most. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important what you just said about, you know, at that moment when enslaved folks got the news, whether it was late or not, that was new. That was good news. Yes. Even if it maybe didn't change anything materially in that moment, like that recognition and that proclamation was yeah. good news. It, and yeah, one thing that I'm thinking about, um, sometimes I, I've just started saying this, and I feel like I'm going to get in trouble one day for saying it, but I never focus on, um, I focus on white supremacy as a system, right? It's not individual people. I'm never talking about that. But we have focused so much on the psychology of the oppressed 
that we don't often think about the psychology of the oppressors. And so think about the mindset of the people who implemented the white supremacist system that we all have to navigate. They were gaslighting people of color for so many years. So there were people who were enslaved that they were trying to diagnose with mental disorders for trying to become free. Mm-hmm. It was jokingly put out, but drapedomania was a whole psychology tried to develop behind that, right? So it was for the first time a victim of psychological abuse of, um, of just being targeted, right? They were tortured. It was them finally saying, oh, my oppressor finally realizes that what they're doing is bad. Even if you know they still who, they're still who they are at their core, right? The system is still in place at its core, but it's that moment of being like, at least I'm not being gaslit right now. At least you're letting me know that you know what you're doing is wrong. Um, which as we know, actually that wasn't the case because the emancipation population did not free them entirely. And mm-hmm. we still, I would argue, um, the press groups are not free. Um, we're as free as we allow to be, but it was still that moment of, okay, at least you acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like to celebrate on Juneteenth. Yes. Yes. Well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm joined by Dr. Leanne Smith, a psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Education at Texas A&M. And we've been talking about Juneteenth. And since, you know, I know you're going to be in Galveston back at home, uh, and I'm sure in what will be you know, a wonderful celebration, but also a very unique one since again, a federal now federally recognized holiday. So I'm wondering, um, how will you celebrate Juneteenth? Yes, yeah, so this evening, I'm actually going to be with my family. We live in Texas City, which is just outside of Galveston. Um, my family is actually on the Juneteenth committee. So they are the people who are in charge. So when I told you I was a baby activist, um, but we're the one, um, they're putting that on. And so I'm going to help them kind of get some of the last minute things together. Um, but Saturday, it starts off with reading the Emancipation Proclamation. So that remembering the accurate history of the holiday. Um, and then uh, Galveston has a number of People who are lower socioeconomic status, there's, there are a number of local concerns that are happening. And so there will probably be conversations about that day long. It's gonna be you know, like a five plus hour day of just being out in community, which also means being out in the sun. So uh, I don't know what I'm gonna have on, but it won't be anything black. Um, but um, actually I'll have my Juneteenth shirt on because we make shirts for Juneteenth. But, we do a lot of feeding the community. Um, so everything is free of charge for Juneteenth. There will be activities for the kids to be able to do stuff, um, but they're also learning about the history of Juneteenth. There'll be local performers coming on. Um, that's also usually a time where local politicians will come and try and talk and educate the community. Um, I will be talking to the community about mental health and education and talking to people about how to advocate for their children in educational settings. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's all about community service, but also jubilation. There's going to be good music, good food. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a good time. How would you 
like to see other cities or even the United States celebrate Juneteenth? Yes, I'm so happy you asked that question. I would like it to simultaneous be, simultaneously be a day of jubilation as it was originally designed to be, but also community service. Um, and I would also like to see a lot of these corporations that are instead say, like that are saying that they're gonna give their employees the day off in, in observance of Juneteenth. I would also like to see ways in which they are helping some of the grassroots organizations, local communities, get more education to the community, meet some of the needs of the community, um, put your money where your mouth is when it comes to you really caring about the true history of Juneteenth. Um, and if you don't know what to do for Juneteenth, ask somebody from the South, um, specifically someone who knows about the history of Juneteenth. That's why I do wanna commend Facebook for getting uh, Miss Tina involved with that because they're, I think she was one of the best people now in a public spotlight who could be talking about this um, because it is a very unique way that we celebrate, but it's purposeful. And I never want that to be lost. Mm -hmm. I think it would be, you know, speaking of what you just said, thinking about corporations, you know, putting their money where their mouth is, this would be an excellent opportunity for all those organizations that pledge money over the past year to actually, you know, put that money in motion, because yes. what we do know is all these big organizations that pledge money for Black Lives Matter or other social justice issues, the majority have not actually made any sort of donations. Yes, and if people need a place to make a donation, uh, like I said, Galveston has a lot of organizations that come together and do things for Juneteenth and they're trying to broaden the impact to take it beyond just Galveston. So um, they're out there, you just have to find them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, I love what you said about, you know, the jubilation and the celebration and also the reminder that, you know, for folks who were getting this good news at that time, it was a day, you know, it was a good day. It was a day to have a break in the clouds. Um, and I think that is something to remember because even now, right? Uh, yes, Juneteenth is a federally recognized holiday, but also, yes, there has been no movement on a series of different laws, bills, you know, legislation, policies on the local level, all the way up to, you know, the federal level. Uh, but I think folks can still be excited about Juneteenth and still be working towards all these other changes. Yes, I feel like we're in a, an age where people don't want to think about context, nuance, duality. It's kind of like one thing has to exist and everything else cannot. But no, I think we can be excited that it's a federal holiday, right? Because that's how I feel. I'm excited that there's now this national recognition but I'm also a bit scared about what that means in terms of moving everything forward. And so that's where I come in and say, okay, I have to do my part and see how I can keep things moving forward. Um, and so I, I, I think we should celebrate. I just don't want it to be a day that only becomes about having a happy hour or this is the day where you go get soul food or, you know, I don't want it to be minimized in that way. Um, especially since there are very important issues that were kind of pushed to the back burner. And if I've already talked about my ancestors being gaslit, are we not also being gaslit by giving a, a holiday um, with a misnomer at that um, and not actually getting legitimate change and equity happening? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot to consider and think about. But as you mentioned, you know, I think one thing that this past year has really helped me think about more is the duality, right, of where you can be in a pandemic, but also have, you know, a lot of other things that maybe you can feel very, you know, thankful for, grateful for. Um, and so it can be, you know, the best of times and the worst of times, so to speak. At the um, same time. <laughs> but that you can still hold space to acknowledge both the things that, you know, are very hurtful and harmful that need to change, but also the things where you're like, you know, I can enjoy this or appreciate this in this moment as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for joining us this morning. It has been such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that I was able to talk about a topic that's very passionate and with someone who is treating it with integrity. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Leanne Smith for joining us this morning and sharing some of her experiences growing up in Galveston and celebrating Juneteenth throughout her life. I know for a lot of folks, um, this Juneteenth, this June 19th may be the first time that you're hearing about Juneteenth um, or the first time that maybe you're being able to celebrate this holiday. Uh, but I think Dr. Smith really shared a lot of ways that we can think about Juneteenth, both as Jubilee and a celebration, but also as a time to invest in our community and particularly to invest and continue to fight for um, equity, particularly for uh, Black Americans. So I think this is such an important time for us to consider all of the ways that we can be a part of positive social change. I know here in the city of Memphis, there are a lot of different Juneteenth celebrations that have been in the works. And I know people are really excited to be able to congregate and engage in community with one another. So I hope that folks are able to learn more about the history of Juneteenth and that this was uh, just a starting point for folks to continue to educate um, themselves about this holiday. And also, of course, to spend some time actually celebrating and reflecting on why this holiday is so important. For today's positive note, I just want to leave you with this quote from Nelson Mandela that says, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sana, and I hope you join me here again on Let's Grab Coffee. Of course, you can always subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in the podcast format on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also listen to this show as well as a great lineup of programming on WYXR.org. So wherever you are in the world, you can always tune in.